five yards of grueling race. And those who race press on and they press on. Every mile or so, perhaps getting a a little drink of nourishment, maybe getting a drink to pour it on their head to be refreshed, but on and on they go. And I love how that race finishes in the Olympic Games. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but they, they run these 26 miles, and then for the last quarter mile, they enter the stadium through a side door. And they run the last quarter mile around the track for all the audience in the stadium to watch and see. Sometimes people are cheered on. The enthusiasm of the the stadium increases. And then they rise to their feet as soon as they see the one passing the finish line and cheer those who are racing even for the gold. Well, that describes our journey a bit in the book of Matthew. We have been marathon running for three and a half years through the book of Matthew, and we have entered the stadium for our last quarter of a mile around the track. The finish line is in sight. Everything's anticipating the finish of the story. And I trust this morning that you will be a bit like the crowd at the Olympic Games. Right? We're going to see some tremendously exciting activity take place in these chapters because what takes place in these chapters, Matthew chapter 26, 27, and 28, is our salvation. This is our salvation in these passages here. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that's everything to us. When you think about it, it's our hope. It's what God has done for us. It's about everything that we have sang this morning. See, we're not saved from our sins by following a clever teacher. We're not saved from our sins by some formula of the truth that we happen to say just right. We aren't saved from our sins by discovering something within us. No, we're saved from our sins because the work that took place in time, space, and history of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God eternal, came to the flesh, came in the flesh to live among us. And by dying on the cross, Jesus took our sins upon Himself. And we can look back some 2,000 years ago and confidently say that Jesus dealt with our sin there. There's a finality of the things that took place upon the cross. And these last chapters, these last three chapters of Matthew are really going to bring that out for us. They're going to tell us what exactly took place in the whole process of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Now the story begins, if you're not open there, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. The the story begins with a a bit of complexity. It's not that it's so complex due to difficulty in understanding. It's, It's complex in that Matthew's trying to give for us a full picture of what took place during the death of Jesus. I mean, think about things in real life and how they happen. They happen in 3D, all happening at once. You know, some person's doing this, another person's doing this, and then they come together, and all these things are happening at once. But when you tell a story, you can't tell it all at once. You need to tell it in a line. You need to tell it in a linear fashion. And so you think about even novel writers, and what do they do? They spend a chapter focusing on one character and and develop that person and, and tell of this person's background, his experiences, his thoughts, his motives, his heart. And then the next chapter backs up and says, okay, well, let's look at this person and talks about this person and this situation and so you get an understanding of what's going on there. 
And then in a future chapter brings both these together and you like see them collide and you know what this person was experiencing over here and this person experiencing over here, but that comes in the third chapter, but you can't just tell all of it at once. And that's what Matthew is doing here. He's going to have various different scenes, but rather than taking a whole chapter to develop one scene, he takes like just a few verses. We read one scene for a few verses and then Matthew's pen flashes to another scene where you see another event take place. And eventually, all these scenes are going to collide upon the death of Jesus. The title of my message this morning is Anticipating the Death of Jesus. Anticipating the Death of Jesus. Because that's what the four scenes that we will look at today help do. They set the stage for the death of Jesus. And these four scenes, they're really going to span the spectrum. We're going to see the death of Jesus from the perspective of Jesus himself. We'll see the death of Jesus from the perspective of his enemies. We'll see the death of Jesus from the perspective of a loving follower of Christ. And we'll see the perspective of Jesus from a betrayer. And all these scenes tell us and teach us one lesson. The days of Jesus were numbered. He was reaching close to the end. They all point to the nearness of his death. I want to begin looking at first, my first point this morning, the perspective of Jesus... Verses 1 and 2 from Matthew chapter 26. Jesus knew full well his death was at hand. And he was anticipating it. We read, And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Now these words take us back to a familiar scene. Jesus telling his disciples he's going to die. I mean, it's almost like a broken record in Matthew's account. Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die. In fact, this is the fourth time that he's told them that. And all of these predictions really came after it was revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. Once the disciples understood and heard for the first time, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To that point on that Jesus needed to give them a, a proper understanding of what it meant that they were that he was the Messiah. Sure it means glory in the kingdom. Sure it means a fantastic inheritance. Right? And even the disciples knew that. They asked for the greatest place in the kingdom. But Jesus had to remind them that the, the path of the Messiah is a suffering path. It's a path of death. And so four times he told his disciples, kept telling them, he needs to go to Jerusalem. He needs to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Right? Hold your finger here in Matthew 25. Let's just read them together. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Right after it was revealed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Chapter 17, verse 22 and 23. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn Him to death. 
and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And here in Matthew 26, verse 2, the same thing. You disciples know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. So you think about why did Jesus feel the need again to remind his disciples? It's been three times. Again and again, I think that it has to do with what he had just finished telling his disciples. That's the clue we get in verse 1. It came about that when Jesus had finished all these words. These words are referring to the Olivet Discourse. that We've been studying the last two months. The, the time of Christ, when he's going to come back in all of his glory. And Jesus said that when he comes back, he's going to come back as the ruling one, the sovereign one, the ruler, reigner, king of the universe, who's going to come back as. Jesus said the temple will be destroyed. Things will get really bad. Earthquakes and famines and pestilence and wars. The sun and moon are going to grow dark. But Jesus said he's going to come back in splendor and glory and power on the clouds. He said that he would be the one who's the judge of the world. He said he's the one who's going to claim his kingdom. And how easy would it have been for his disciples to forget the words that Jesus said before. Oh, maybe what Jesus was mistaken talking about this death stuff. He's just talking about this glorious kingdom and all the things coming. And so filled may their minds have been of the glory of Jesus that they may have forgotten his suffering. They may have been so focused on the crown that they forgot the cross. So focused on the victory they forgot the road to get the victory. In verse 2, Jesus puts it as plain and clear as it can be. He says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus focuses attention upon the future, but said, you know what, there might be a delay. When he spoke about the ten virgins waiting for the, the bridegroom to come from the feast, there was a delay and some of the virgins weren't ready with their oil. When, when the man had entrusted the talents to his slaves, he was gone, as Jesus said, for a long time, enough for them to double their money. But in verse 2, Jesus says, there's a definite time frame on this, disciples. There's two days when the Passover is coming and I'm going to die. It's going to be very soon. It's in a, a matter of days. It's not next year or next month or next week. It is this week that I am going to die. It's just a few hours away when my death is going to take place. Very specific. He links his death also here, you see in verse 2, with the Passover. And I think the disciples probably missed this. I mean, they missed his death. And I think that they missed here even the connection here with the Passover and what that was about. But it ought not to be the case with us. We ought to fully understand what Jesus was saying, what he was doing. The Passover was a time in which families all around Jerusalem would remember the redemption from the land of Egypt. They'd take an unblemished lamb into their home for a few days. Look at it, get to know it. And then on the eve of the Passover, they'd kill it. They'd take some of its blood and put it on the lintels of their houses and it would be a reminder to them of God's great redemption of the people of Israel from the slavery and bondage of Egypt. And as Jesus links His death here with the Passover, I believe He's seeking to, to link His death with everything the Passover represents. As Jesus was sacrificed during the Passover, He would become our Passover, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. 
No longer would the Israelites look back at a lamb. They would look to the Lamb of God. Jesus Himself was the unblemished Messiah who can take away the wrath of God. And Jesus made this eminently clear, as we'll see next week when we look at the Passover account in verses 17 through 30. He made it very clear that though you all in the Passover are looking to Moses and remembering the redemption of Moses, I want you, I'm changing this all around, soon you're going to look at this Passover meal in remembrance of me. That's what Jesus was saying. Changing all around, saying, I am the Passover lamb. Everything to which all of the former Passover lambs represented, that is me. That's what he was representing here in verse 2. Now, the one thing in verse 2 that's noticeably absent is his mention of the resurrection. He doesn't mention the resurrection in verse 2 like he did in all the other predictions. I don't think it's because he forgot about the resurrection. I think it's because the issue at hand wasn't his resurrection. The issue at hand was his death. And sometimes when you tell somebody lots of details, they, they kind of miss the important things. I think Jesus was being very short, very to the point. My death is coming. Oh, Jesus didn't lose sight of the resurrection. In verse 32, he speaks of the resurrection. But the the priority of the moment is Jesus anticipating his death. His death was no accident. Jesus wasn't some casualty of a political ploy that went astray. He wasn't caught in the crossfire, killed accidentally when the bullet intended for another accidentally killed him. Jesus wasn't surprised when he found himself nailed upon a cross like saying, how did I get here? Jesus died the death that he knew he was going to die. He died a death upon the cross because it was his plan to, to die during the Passover. It's what Jesus was anticipating. In fact, this was the whole reason why he came to earth. Mark 10:45. the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to earth to die. It's not a surprise That's a perspective of Jesus anticipating his death. Let's look secondly at the perspective of his enemies. This comes in verses 3 through 5. The enemies of Jesus were the leaders of the religious establishment, chief priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. They all hated him and they all wanted him dead. And beginning in verse 3, we read of a special meeting that those leaders convened. It was a meeting of strategy. Here it is. The chief priests and the elders of the people were all gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. They're strategizing together. Trying to figure out how to destroy this man. And for a long time, they had set their hearts against Jesus. The first clue of that comes back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, just after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. They they brought him into the synagogue and said, Jesus, is it proper to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus talked to them and healed them. And it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, that the Pharisees went out and they counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, for months, their strategy had been to try to trap him. Trap him in something that Jesus might do or something that Jesus might say, right? They wanted to mess him up in some way. They asked him with a sign from heaven, give us a sign from heaven with the intention, Matthew says in Matthew 16, 1, to trap him. Probably to say, look at this miraculous sign. He's a Satan. 
tried to trap him some way. And Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. They tried to trap him in difficult questions, asking him about their traditions. Get Jesus to speak against the traditions and the people of Israel will rise up against him. Or to speak about sticky situations like divorce. How are you going to handle that one? Or about taxes. Maybe we'll get the Romans mad at him. Or about the resurrection. Maybe others will get mad at him. But it reached a point at this point that Jesus answered every single question. He did every deed completely above reproach. In fact, it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 46, that nobody dared ask him any more questions. So well had he answered all the questions. So well had he passed and and missed all of their traps that they had laid for him. And at this point, in Matthew chapter 22, just after they said they're not going to try to ask him any more questions, that's when Jesus turned up the heat. It's when Jesus pumped the water bottle rocket, right? For those of you here, you remember what that is. Increasing the pressure by denouncing the great hypocrisy of all these religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. The battle lines were drawn. Jesus was on the side of righteousness and truth and integrity. And they were on the side of wickedness and error and hypocrisy. And as these leaders convened together, assassination was their only option. Look at verse 4. They plotted to seize Jesus by stealth, that is deceitfully, that is by trickery, by cunning, and kill him. They wanted to capture him. Maybe, hey, Jesus, you know, we got to talk for you down at the synagogue. And along the way, have people ready to ambush him. If you've been reading through in our Bible reading, I think it was maybe yesterday's reading in Acts, or maybe two days ago, that, that there was an ambush set for Paul when Paul was in Jerusalem. They were going to ambush him and kill him on the way. There are some scribes and Pharisees who took a, a vow not to eat or drink until they caught, caught Paul. And then Paul found out about that and escaped to Caesarea under Roman guard. But that's a similar thing they were seeking about trying to do here. Let's, let's get a trap. Get Jesus walking through the streets of Jerusalem and all of a sudden, he's gone. That was their try. But they knew that it wasn't going to be a, an easy thing. In fact, it's almost humorous when you think about the several occasions when the gospel writers record for us how they tried to kill Jesus. In fact, it's in John chapter 8 when Jesus claimed to be sovereign God. They picked up stones to throw at him, but it says that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Here they're picking up stones and all of a sudden Jesus like gone. They're like, where's the guy? They couldn't find him anymore. He's just gone. In John chapter 10, it tells another occasion where they're trying to, they were seeking to seize him. And it says there, they eluded his grasp. Like, like a football player trying to be tackled, you know, just kind of, you know, slipping and breaking tackles. Jesus just eluded their grasp and went on the way. So they knew that it was going to be a difficult job to catch Jesus. The religious leaders knew that Jesus was a bit like the cat that came back. Are you familiar with that story? I don't know the tune, but here's the story about the cat that came back. Maybe I'll try to cadence it for you here a little bit. Well, just like everybody, you have troubles of your own. Let me tell you, mister of the sorrow I have known. I have an old gray cat that I couldn't bear to keep. He spent the nights a-howling and he wouldn't let me sleep. So I put him in a box and tied it up quite well. I had some fellows help me and I paid them not to tell. We put it in a boxcar, the westbound 710. The train pulled away and was never seen again. But the cat came back the very next day. Yes, the cat came back and he wouldn't stay away. Meow, kitty, meow, so pretty. Meow, such a pity that the cat came back. 
So I took him to the harbor and I put him on a ship. I bid him bon voyage for that oceanic trip. The captain was obliging and glad to help us out. We tied him to the anchors that, so that there could be no doubt. Well, we heard that sad report of that mighty storm at sea. And though it may sound heartless, I was happy as could be. The paper said the ship went down beneath a heavy gale and not a single soul was left to tell the awful tale. But the cat came back the very next day. Yes, the cat came back. He wouldn't stay away. Meow, kitty, meow, so pretty, meow, such a pity. But the cat came back. So I gave him to a scientist destined for the moon. The cat was used for ballast in an outer space balloon. I guess you know what happened. That balloon's up there still. And early that next morning, guess what came across that hill? Meow. That's right. Now, everyone in town has sworn to shoot that cat on sight. With that crazy cat around, you couldn't sleep at night. We even formed a posse just to hunt that critter down. You could hear the guns a-blazing as they ran him out of town. But the cat came back that very next day. Yes, the cat came back. He wouldn't stay away. Meow, kitty. Meow, so pretty. Meow, such a pity that the cat came back. And I think that's the perspective the Pharisees had with Jesus. Trying to catch him. Trying to seize him. And yet him eluding their grasp all the time, all over the place. Try as they might to kill him somehow. He'd always been able to elude his attackers. You know why? Because his hour hadn't yet come. You read through the Gospel of John, you read that many, many times. His hour had not yet come. My hour had not yet come. My hour had not yet come. But you know what right now? His hour has come. But what's very interesting, it's an ironic thing really, that the time when His hour has come, these scribes and Pharisees say, well, we want to kill Him, but not now. We're going to back away. We're not going to kill Him now. Not during the Passover. This would be a terrible time. I mean, in Jerusalem, the time of the Passover, 30,000 people in Jerusalem. It swells even up to a million people, the time of the Passover. And they knew that the murder of Jesus would set off a riot among the people. And they would stir against the people, the religious leaders. Rome would get hold of that. Rome would have to subdue all the crowds. And then with finality, the religious leaders would decrease in their authority and their strength and their power. And so they said, no, 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 not during the festival. That's what verse 5 says. Not during the festival lest a riot occur. Now, from all human standpoints of view, it was really a wise choice for them. Waiting until the crowds are gone to make it much easier for them. They'd have much fewer problems. But the intriguing thing here is that their decision is completely contrary to God's plans. The Lord had planned that Jesus would die during the feast. The chief priests and the elders agreed not during the feast. And so when man makes a plan and God makes a plan, who wins? God does every time. Proverbs 16, verse 9, The the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Try as you might to escape the sovereign hand of God, you'll never do it. I read a story this week that illustrates this well. Peter Marshall told it. He was a one-time chaplain in the United States Senate. He said this. He talked of a man who worked as the servant of a wealthy merchant. And the servant had gone out into town to shop for a day when suddenly he felt someone brush heavily against his shoulder. And somewhat offended, he turned around to the person who jostled him and found himself staring into a pair of eyes that spoke death to him. 
And the servant was panicking and he dropped everything and he ran home. And his master saw him running breathlessly toward the house and he he met him on the front steps. He said, what on the earth is the matter with you? He said, oh, sir, someone in the marketplace rudely brushed me. And when I, I turned to face him, he looked like the angel of death to me. He, too, had a look of shock on his face. It was almost as if he wanted to grab me, but, but then he backed away. I'm afraid, sir, I don't want to go back to that market. And the master, being sympathetic, said, Well, saddle one of our horses and ride all day until you reach the distant village of Samara. And you stay there in Samara until you get word from me that it's safe for you to return. And so the servant mounted a horse, sped off to that city of Samara. And meanwhile, the master took a trip to the market to find this person who had so frightened his servant. As he wound his way through the crowded streets, he suddenly came face to face with a strange-looking individual. He said, Who are you? The merchant said. Are you the one who just scared my servant? Yes, indeed, he replied. Well, why did you frighten him? He said this. Well, I was truly surprised to see him here. I'm the angel of death, and I chose to spend the day here before heading for my stop tonight. You see, it's not so much that I surprised him as that he surprised me. I did not expect to see him here because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. And just like the angel of death had an appointment with a servant in Samara, so did Jesus of Nazareth have an appointment upon the cross in a mere two days. And though the schemes of the religious leaders were contrary to this appointment, it wouldn't prevent the plans of God from being carried out. The mind of a man plans the way, but the Lord directs his steps. Well, anticipating the death of Jesus, we've seen the perspective of Jesus himself, the perspective of his enemies. And now let's look to the perspective of love in verses 6 through 13. It's the account of a, a woman anointing Jesus before his death with some very costly perfume. Let me read it for you. It says in verse 6, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For the perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money had given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, What this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. Now, when you compare this account with the Gospel of John, you can discover more details. First of all, you know that this event probably happened before the triumphal entry. John's very clear in John chapter 12, verse 1, that this event took place six days before the Passover. Now, this isn't a contradiction in the Bible, but what it tells us is that when Matthew puts this story in here, He's not putting it in chronologically. He's putting it in thematically. Right? I said at the beginning of my message that he's a writer anticipating the death of Jesus, putting together these different vignettes of what's going to take place. And that's what he does here. 
Everything's focusing upon Jesus anticipating his death. And the clue to this comes in verse 12 when Jesus said that she anointed his body with perfume to prepare me for burial. That's what Matthew's getting at. That's the thrust of these passages, preparing Jesus to die. That's what we see. And the scene begins here in verse 6 with Jesus in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Now, we can assume Simon was probably one of the lepers that Jesus had cleansed. Otherwise, Jesus would be transgressing the law of Moses. said, keep your distance from a leper. And I believe Simon here is probably throwing a party for Jesus in thanks and praise and great love to him, hosting a party. And, and when you put together John's details, you find out that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were also there. And all the disciples... So you think about you, Simon, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, all the disciples. You're talking 15, 20 people, maybe more. It was a fairly large celebration. As it was a a fairly large gathering, there was Martha serving those who were at the table. Typical Luke 10, right? Remember, Martha, Martha was busy serving and Martha was there, but Mary was busy worshiping and listening to Jesus. And Mary did a great thing. Here in verse 7 it says, and this was Mary... You can read that in John 12. It says, A woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Matthew simply identifies this perfume as being very costly. In John, you read that it was worth 300 denarii. Now, a denarii is a day's wage. So 300 denarii, that's like almost a year's salary. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars worth of perfume. Some commentators say it was probably imported from India, which helped make it so expensive. This this vial of perfume that was poured upon Jesus. Tens of thousands of dollars. And when the disciples saw what Mary had done, they began to think in their minds, okay, now, how much was that perfume worth? Ooh. 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 They weren't pleased. I mean, like, not even in the least. Their response is recorded here in verse 8. It says they were indignant. In other words, they were angered at such an action. And they said, why this waste? This perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, they used perfume more back in those days because they didn't have such things called deodorant. They didn't take showers as much. They just, you know, just put some nice smelling stuff on you and cover it all up and it's fine and dandy is what they did. And Jesus got really covered at this point. Perfume was around available. And these disciples are picking it up. They said, hey, you've got a big waste in this. Now, John tells us that Judas was the ringleader of this complaint. Not so much because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he just lost tens of thousands of potentially pilferable dollars. And I tell you, what a great picture of sin that is, right? One person stirs dissatisfaction in others who eventually become his voice in protest to push His issue, which is actually another agenda. Let me warn you, that is how sin often works in the church. That's how it worked with Judas. That's how it often works in the church. And these disciples were directing their attention upon Mary. And I just feel sorry for for Mary. She'd acted in love to her Savior. And yet these disciples were belittling her. And Jesus, ever compassionate, verse 10, comes to her rescue. Why do you bother this woman? You're bothering her. Why are you pestering her so? And I think they usually could have justified their response. Lord, think about it. This ointment she placed on your head 
is worth 300 denarii and she just wasted it. I mean, it's a terrible thing that she did. Think of the benefits that that sum of money could have done to help the poor. Don't you care about the poor people, Jesus? I mean, it's a waste of money. Doesn't God call us to be good stewards? Right? Benjamin Franklin said, Jesus, waste not, want not, right? But she's wasted it all. Well, from a logical standpoint, certainly it was a waste. And I think that you couldn't really argue with the disciples. They had a point. But here's the thing they don't understand, okay? The point they don't understand is this, that love is extravagant. What appears to be waste in the mind of some, love will willingly sacrifice. Oh, Henry illustrated this very well in the short story he told of a man and woman, a wife, a husband and wife, Jim and Della Young. They were poor in material wealth and yet rich in love towards one another. The story oh, Henry picked it up on Christmas Eve and Della had been saving her pennies for months and all she could save was a dollar and 87 cents. Desperately trying to figure out what she could purchase as a present for Jim, her husband. She had only two, they had only two possessions that they really prized and coveted. One was Jim's watch, which his grandfather had and his father had as well. And for Della, it was her beautiful long hair. Reaching below her knees, her hair rippled and shined like a cascade of brown waters. Della thought for a bit and she said, well, I'll sell my hair. And from the money from that, I can buy a present for Jim. And so she went off to a store, sold her hair, got $20 in her hands, then went throughout the town looking for something to buy for Jim, her husband. And she found a chain for his watch. It cost $21. So she bought it. It's got 87 cents left to spare. She comes home, fixes her meal, delightful, wonderful. She's thinking, anticipating giving this chain to Jim for his watch. Jim came home a bit later than usual, but that was okay. When Jim arrived at home, he saw Della had cut her hair and simply stood and, and stared. Della said, Jim, darling, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. But before Della could give the gift to Jim, Jim showed her why he was so stunned. He had bought Della some combs to use in her beautiful hair. Some combs and barrettes probably that could sit in her hair and adorn them. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in her beautiful hair. And they were expensive and she'd craved and yearned for them without the least hope of possession. But now they were hers, but her hair was gone. She took the combs, hugged them in her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile. She says, my hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della held out her hand to Jim and showed him the wonderful chain that she had purchased for him. She said, isn't it dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. And Jim sadly told Della, I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And we might look at that and say, that's a tragedy. But that's how love works. Love will give up expensive, dear, treasured things as to express one's love. 
Love will sacrifice greatly. Listen, even when it seems unreasonable, even when it costs your most precious possession, that's what love will do. I mean, think about flowers. Okay, let's, let's think logically, right, about, about flowers, right? What happens? In a few days, they, they wither up, they die, and they're in the garbage in a week. But love will sacrifice and will give to that. I remember last summer, it just so happened that Yvonne and I were apart from each other on our 12th anniversary. She was in California, and I was here in Illinois. And maybe you remember I telling you that story that I... I called up a florist there in California and I sent her a dozen red roses to express to her my love for her. And we got the bill and it was 70 bucks to send a dozen roses. Now that might be reasonable, but we were, we were talking from logical standpoints. You know what? In two weeks, 70 bucks, just all gone. But from the perspective of love, that's what's natural. It's natural to sacrifice willingly, and that's what this woman did. She acted out of love to Jesus, to her twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars wasn't too much to spend on her Lord. The disciples objected on logical grounds. To them, they considered a waste. But look, what the disciples call a waste, Jesus calls a good deed. So, verse ten says, "Why do you bother the woman? She has done a good deed to me." Sure, it may have been wasteful. But it's an expression of love. It was perfectly adequate. And then Jesus goes on and says, Okay, you guys want to speak logically? Let's deal logically. He says in verse 11 and 12, The poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. When Jesus says these things, He says, Listen, I'm leaving soon. My days are numbered. I'm going to only be with you just a few more days. Your opportunities to demonstrate your love directly to me are almost over. Now, regarding the poor, you're going to have abundant opportunities. You'll have many, many opportunities to express your love to the poor, but regarding me, you will have few opportunities. And we know what it's about when a loved one we know is leaving. We can focus a lot of our attention upon that loved one And and neglect and forget the things of normal life, knowing that the things of normal life are going to come back, and we'll get to them. I think about the scene when Adoniram Judson was set to sail for Burma. Those of you who read this biography, probably we read that as a church together. You probably remember that time when Adoniram and, and four of his friends and their wives were off to Burma to be the first American missionaries. And when the church was to commission Adoniram and his four friends... The church was packed. Courtney Anderson said that at least 1,500 people were there to witness the event. He said so packed was the auditorium that the aisles could be traced only by the ridges and the seams made by people standing. In other words, you couldn't see. It was standing room only, S-R-O, at the church. The platform around the high white pulpit was completely filled by members of the Ecclesiastical Council and various dignities. Everything said and done in the service, writes Courtney Anderson, conveyed the spirit of farewell. The audience realized that it was seeing the five men being bid a farewell that in some respects approached the bait at the edge of a grave in the prospect of an eventful resurrection. 1,200 people saying goodbye to these missionaries. They wouldn't see. They're not coming back in furlough in five years. Edna Judson made it back to the United States only once, like 30 years later. Several of them even died on the mission field. 
But this was taking place with Jesus. His days are numbered. He's leaving soon. His disciples seem clueless. But Mary knew full well what was taking place. She expressed her love to him by covering his body with sweet-smelling perfume, whose aroma, I'm sure, covered the whole house. And I'm sure that for weeks afterwards, the smell probably continued to, to permeate Simon's house. As, you know, that, that would have dripped upon his head and dripped upon the table and dripped upon the floor. He never would have been able to really clean it up with finality. And the, the smell would have lingered. And he would have sat down to eat sometime and got a whiff of that smell. And his mind would have gone back to that scene to think about that great expression of love that Mary expressed for her Savior. And I will say that sweet smell continues today. Oh, we might not smell the fragrance, but as we hear the story repeated, we can experience and think upon, reflect upon the love that she had for Jesus. In fact, this is a fulfillment of verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. And such scriptures being fulfilled today at Rock Valley Bible Church. Her active love continues to have an effect all the way down to today. And really, her example is a great model for us to follow. We ought to follow, we ought to follow her example and love the Lord in this manner. No sacrifice ought to be too great to demonstrate your love for your Savior. Paul said, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable the spiritual service of worship acceptable to God. Why did Mary sacrifice this perfume to Jesus? It's because it was great kindness and mercy to her to save her, give her gave her re- reason to respond to him. And that's what Paul says, because in light of the great mercies of God, we got to take our bodies and offer them as wholehearted sacrifices in love to Jesus. Do you know anything of this? Do you know anything of complete sacrificial devotion to the Lord where no sacrifice is too great? When David offered, uh, the, was offered the threshing floor of Ariuna as a place to offer sacrifices, Ariuna tried to give it to David. Here, this is for you. Here, sacrifice right here. And David said, I won't have that. He said, I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. And how many Christians are there? How many people are there who live what they think are good Christian lives without knowing anything of wholehearted sacrifice to Jesus? Oh, they come to church what's convenient. Oh, they give the convenience of whatever overflow they have rather than giving the first fruits, rather than sacrificing of themselves wholeheartedly rather than being involved in people's lives when it's not convenient, when it's hard. That's what this woman is calling us to, complete sacrifice. Malachi the prophet rebuked the people of Israel who offered sacrifices that were blind, lame, sick, and even stolen. I need to offer a sacrifice. Well, let me steal this lamb over here and offer this one. Or let me find this one that's blind. I'm not going to use it anyway. Let me offer up that one. And you know what God said? He says, I hate your sacrifices. I hate them. Those offerings are made of convenience. God rejected their worship. See, because God wants our all. And Mary gave Jesus her all. 
300 denarii worth of perfume. That's just a, a sacrifice or expression of love. We would do well to imitate Mary. And her actions is really a great illustration of the gospel of grace. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at. And so he says, truly, wherever this gospel is preached, right, that's the gospel of the, the grace of God, that God totally, uncompletely, in His sovereign mercy has decided to bestow His grace upon His chosen ones, to open their eyes, they might see the glories of Christ, and then to see them respond to Him as is only appropriate, not by compulsion or pressure requirements in any way. It's not because you have to do this, or you have to do this, or you have to do this, or you have to give this much of your income. It's because God in His grace has saved you. He said, "What? everything, Lord, is yours. And then everything you respond with to Him is out of your great love to God because He loved you greatly in Christ. Sure, the sacrifice of Mary was lavish, and sure, it was over and above necessary and customary, but such an abundance is the point of her love to Jesus. And I say anything that we do in our lives, believers in Christ, is response. It's response to God's mercy. It's response to God's grace. And our responses ought to be lavish. We have to overflow in our commitment, in our adoration, our praise, the things we give to God. And so I ask you about your life. Is your life pictured by Mary and what she did? Is Mary a picture of your life? Because it ought to be. And wherever the gospel of grace is preached, Mary will be held up for years to come. That's an example of how we ought to live. Well, that's the perspective of love. We saw the perspective of Jesus. He knew He was going to die. The perspective of enemies. They wanted Him to die. The perspective of love that prepared Him to die. And now He comes the perspective of hate that betrays Him. Now we're talking about Judas here in verses 14 to 16. It's a huge contrast to this woman. As we read these verses, I want you just to think in your minds, where are the contrasts? What's different between this woman and um, Judas? Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Contrasts are all over the place. This woman loved Jesus. But Judas, by his actions, demonstrated he hated Jesus. Can't get more opposite than that. This woman was willing to lavish upon Jesus an abundance of very costly perfume, tens of thousands of dollars. And Judas was willing to betray Jesus and to get, rather than to give, a mere 30 pieces of silver, which when you try to do the math, like $20. This woman willingly gave herself. Judas was looking to get for himself. This woman had spent only a little time with Jesus. When Jesus was in Bethany, it was the home of Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. He was with Mary and Martha, but he didn't spend three years together with them like Judas had. This woman expressed her love to her Savior and Judas turned his back on his own salvation. The one who could save him, he turned his back and betrayed him. I want you to notice how quickly the deal was done. Judas went to the chief priest, asked for a deal, hand Jesus over. He said, what are you going to give me? They said, well, how about 30 pieces? He said, okay, they waited out and it was done. Just like that. Then Judas went out to look for an opportune time. 
with money in his pocket. And how quickly the plans of man change. We saw the religious leaders plan on waiting to capture Jesus, but here was their opportunity and they were going to take it. By the end of the chapter, Jesus will betray Judas into the hands of the priests and the elders. We see that in verse 47. And we're going to look more deeply into spiritual betrayal when we get to that and how terrible it was to be betrayed by a friend and how terrible it is for the one who betrays. But sufficient for this morning is simply that we deal with the fact that Jesus, Judas made a deal with these religious leaders in anticipating his death. It's what this passage is all about. Jesus and his days are numbered. Soon he'll be placed on a Roman cross to die. That will happen as soon as Judas has an opportunity, which will come when Jesus is praying in the garden. It's what all these things are pointing to, right? Jesus knew that he was going to die within a few days. The leaders knew that he must die. The woman knew that his death was coming. And Judas was finished with Jesus and looking to help him die. And the marathon we've been running through Matthew will soon be over. Jesus will cross the finish line. In fact, even upon the cross, he says, this is finished. His death is the victory. His death is our victory. Think about the marathon. You know, it's running around. And who cheers the loudest when that that man is running that final, last quarter lap? Who cheers the loudest? The nationals from that country. I guarantee you, if we were all in that Olympic stadium... And it was a Filipino man in front. You know who would be screaming the loudest? Edith and her father and Orion would be, yeah, the Filipino, he's us, he's one of us, right? And when Jesus crosses the finish line, his victory is our victory. Because the Bible says that those who place their faith and trust in him died with him on the cross. Their sins were nailed to the cross back then. We are present with them. And so, over the next few months, there's going to be great opportunity for you to fill your mind thinking about the death of Jesus, which is actually your victory. When Christianity is boiled all the way down to it as the most basic level, Christianity is all about the death of Jesus. As I read this morning in our scripture reading, we preach Christ crucified. I mean, when, when it all goes down to it, in fact, Paul says, I determine nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. What he's saying is that is like the, the pinnacle and the peak and everything. It's Messiah crucified. And some people look at Messiah crucified and the Jews stumble over that. They say, how could our Messiah suffer? How could our Messiah die? That, that, that can't be right. So they stumble over that. The Greeks think it's foolish. They need to think of God Almighty dying on a cross. That's ridiculous. Your religion is craziness. We want a powerful leader, not a crucified dead leader. But Paul says to the called, they are the ones who find the message of Christ crucified to be the power and wisdom of God. And so over the next few months, we continue through Matthew's narrative of the death of Jesus. It's a great opportunity for your soul to be stirred, the power of the message we proclaim Christ crucified it. I know that I am excited for us to look deeply into the wonderful message of the cross. And I simply ask, are you? You think of Jesus dying. Does that stir your soul? Are you you thrilled with the prospect here over the next few months? Matthew 26, 27, 28. To see His death, His burial, His resurrection. And then to understand the glories that we have.
Well, today was an appetizer to just simply whet your appetite. In future to come, we're going to have warm, succulent, juicy meals. Because this is all anticipating his death. That's what an appetizer does, right? It just anticipates the meal to come. Ought to stir you on to partake of that meal just more greatly than you ever would have before. And that's what these things do. So you anticipate the different scenes, different perspectives of the death of Jesus. Ought to stir your hunger on to think more deeply about the mighty cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we often sing at Rock Valley Bible Church, Oh, mighty cross, love lifted high, the Lord of life raised there to die. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. Oh, mighty cross, what throne of grace, He knew no sin, yet took my place. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. O mighty cross, O Christ so pure, love held Him there, such shame endured. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. O mighty cross, my soul's release, the stripes He bore have brought me peace. His sacrifice on Calvary has made the mighty cross a tree of life to me. And God, I would pray at Rock Valley Bible Church that this song would true, be true and resonate in our hearts and our lives. As we think upon and reflect upon someone dying, may that instrument of torture, that instrument of death, that hangman's noose, that electric chair, those rifles before the firing squad, may those instruments of death May the cross, the instrument of the death of our Savior, may it become a tree of life for us. Lord, I would pray for Your Spirit, not only even today, but in weeks and months to come, as we think about everything that Jesus did and accomplished for us. May it stir our heart like Mary to willingly sacrifice our all to You who gave Your all to us. I think of the verse... The Scripture says He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Lord, that is our state. For many of us in this room, You've died and rose again on our behalf. And may we not live for ourselves, but may we live for You, sacrificing greatly, giving our all because we know of what the cross means to us. It's a tree of life. And that stir our hearts. May we glory in the cross. May we glory in the cross of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.